Well, it is uh, an honor to be here and a joy to be here with you this morning. Um, Already such a a powerful and meaningful time together in worship and confession, and uh, my heart is is already full. Um, So uh, now we get to spend some time in God's Word together, so I am excited for that. And so if you would, if you don't already have a a Bible and have it turned to Mark 6, I would encourage you to, uh, to go ahead and do that. And we will be uh, in beginning in verse 30. Um, I love Fridays. Fridays are my day off. And so every Friday, uh, my wife Renee and I, we send the kids off to school and I promptly come back to the house and we have an entire day together while our three boys are in school. And Fridays are amazing. A couple Fridays ago, uh, we, it was sort of our designated Friday to get the backyard kind of spring and summer ready. So we did sort of the thing that you do, which is, uh, uh, which is to get all of the gardening uh, equipment. We bought uh, loads of plants, and uh, we spent a Friday um, morning and afternoon just doing all the classic things that you do in a backyard gardened, watered plants, uh, bought some patio furniture uh, that cost about a zillion dollars. Um, and it was like two chairs and had to take out a mortgage. But uh, anyway, so, uh, so that two Fridays, uh, I guess it was three Friday mornings ago, uh, we were in, in the backyard. I'm putting patio furniture together. And my wife, Renee, she is uh, on the other side of the house watering plants. We had just a a row of plants. So she's watering. I can't see her, but she's on the other side. I'm putting patio furniture. And first of all, if if you know, get to ever get a chance to meet or know my wife Renee, one thing you'll realize is that she's very tough. She's a very resilient person. She uh, worked in the medical uh, field for 20 years. She's like one of these who is never squeamish, Side of blood, side of anything that's gross. She loves like medical, like, I don't know. I'm very squeamish. She isn't. So nothing really phases her. So it came as a shock when I'm working on patio furniture and I hear a screech that could only have come out of a small child. <laughs> and I'm, I'm stunned. I, I don't know what's, what's going, so I, 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 I drop the, the patio furniture and, and I run over to see the, the screeching noise coming out of the, wife, out of the, the mouth of, of my wife. And I'm like, Renee, what's wrong? What, what happened? She, she's watering, she's with a mouse. <clears throat> it was the world's tiniest rodent. And yet, at the sight of literally the smallest mouse you've ever seen, just helplessly kind of stuck in grass, the sight of that small creature turned in an instant. My wife, who is the toughest, most resilient, least squeamish person in the world, it instantly caused her to revert into a small child in a moment. It's fascinating. By the way, story told with permission. (laughs) Always key. Uh, Have you ever taken a step backwards? 
Have you ever stepped into an environment or a situation where suddenly you kind of find yourself going backwards and becoming like a more immature version of yourself? Um, as a pastor, I've noticed this thing that's kind of this fascinating ob- observation with counseling where when young couples, here's the thing that they tend to do, young couples, they, they get married, then they uh, inevitably they'll go and they'll visit one of their mom dad's place and if they go to the the house and the home that they grew up in one of the of the partners will when they're in their house they grew up in with their their mom and dad they like become the teenage version of themselves inevitably there's a fight between the husband and the wife and they sometimes they come into my office and they're like what's wrong i thought i married a man but really he's just a 15 year old boy uh and, or 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 i thought i married a grown woman and now she's she goes crazy when she's at home with her parents i don't know what the deal is and they revert they take a step back they become a slightly worse version of themselves now since the last time I was with you guys, there was this thing that happened, evidently, a couple of days uh, after I was with you. Uh, and by the way, the, the theme of the sermon, I, I, I kind of don't remember everything, but I remember just saying, hey, it's going to be okay. Uh, nothing to worry about. Don't worry, be happy. Um, anyway, it didn't, it didn't age well. Um, <laughs> but I think it, you don't have to be a sociologist to observe that all of society has taken a step back. That the entire world, our institutions, our um, sense of confidence and understanding of each other, of ourselves, we've all kind of taken a step back. During the pandemic, I think it's fair to say that most, if not all of us, became slightly more irritable. We became more sensitive. We became a little bit more judgmental and sort of flattened out our thinking about other types of people. We all have kind of just taken a step back. Now, um, that didn't just happen emotionally. It didn't just happen relationally or societally. I think for many of us, it happened spiritually as well. Many of us have taken a step back. We've just kind of gone backwards. We've just kind of gone into a season or a, a, a pattern where our faith is less than what it used to be. Um, the journey of faith is long, um, and so it's only to be expected that many of us will have peaks and valleys along the way, so it's not actually that unusual that some of us would have seasons where we tend to take a step backwards, but But what happens when we do? What happens when our trust in Jesus at one point used to be easy and used to be natural, and now it just seems really hard to trust in Jesus? Or what happens when obedience to Jesus used to be done with joy, and yet now it's done with this sort of, this kind of hard work, and it's kind of a burden to obey Jesus, and it used to not be like that. What happens when we take a step backwards? Now, some of us go through these journeys, uh, and I'm just going to assume that there's a handful of us this morning where if you do an analysis on your own heart, 
if you were honest with yourself, you might actually diagnose you as, yeah, I've taken a step backwards. My faith has reverted. I've actually, I've grown in immaturity. So if that's you this morning, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about what happens when our faith actually steps backwards. Now, to help us do that, we're going to look at this passage that Brad read for us, and we're going to look in particular at the disciples. Now, uh, this story begins with the disciples, and it ends with the disciples, and let's see how the disciples start in this uh, there's obviously two different stories that are, are put together here, feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. Let's see how the disciples start. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So it starts with uh, the disciples. Jesus, in the previous episode, had sent them out on this mission, and they had crushed it. They healed the sick. They cast out demons. They proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God. They literally felt the very power of God working in and through them. And they could see God's kingdom beginning to come into reality through their ministry. They were, they were on fire. They were crushing it. So uh, what do they, they do after this successful missionary endeavor? They can't wait to come back and tell Jesus. And so this is what they do. They, the story starts, the, and notice that Mark calls them apostles here. Like, to, like these are the sent one. Apostle means just a sent one. So these usually are described as disciples. But here, Mark even calls them apostles. Like sort of a little preview. These are going to be the, the sent ones of Jesus. Um, and so the apostles return. They tell Jesus everything they've done. They are doing great spiritually. Let's see how they end. Uh, let's look at the very last verse here in this section. Verse 52. For they, and the, the they here are the disciples, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So, this, these episodes begin with them on fire, crushing it, and it ends with their hearts being hardened. The only other time this phrase, hardened hearts, was used previously was to refer to the Pharisees, who were hardened opponents of Jesus. They had a hard heart towards Jesus. And so, what happened between the disciples having all of this momentum to them having hearts that resembled the very opponents of Jesus. That's what we're going to try and discover this morning. And I think if we can discover what happened in the heart of the disciples, it might give us some clues as to how it is we might have an action plan for if we, when we find ourselves taking a step backwards. So that's what we're going to do this morning. All right, so let's just uh, pick it up here in verse 31. And uh, he, Jesus, said to them, to the disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while, for many were coming and going, and they had no leisure to eat. And they went away to the boat to a desolate place. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot. 
from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So, uh, so remember, they're, they're coming off this successful missionary endeavor, um, and, and, but they're exhausted. They're so tired. Uh, Mark highlights, they didn't have time to eat. So I don't know if you've been so sort of uh, caught up in work or so caught up in a schedule, uh, so caught up in doing good stuff that you don't even have really time to eat and you're beginning to sort of wear out. So that's sort of where the, the disciples were. And so Jesus actually came up with this idea. Jesus says, hey guys, we need some R&R, R&R we need some rest. So we're gonna go to this desolate place. We're gonna go to a place where there's no other people. We're gonna have a little vacation. I have a vacation coming up here soon. I um, can't wait. And, and, yet, and yet somehow word got out that Jesus is taking the disciples to this desolate place where there are no people. And then when they show up to the desolate place, what happens? Verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. So they were already there at that desolate place. That means it's not desolate anymore, like not in the way that you would hope that it would be desolate. Imagine... Uh, taking a vacation. You have sort of all the time and effort to go to have the vacation. And often what makes a vacation a vacation is that it's actually not, a, not the destination, but it's actually a vacation away from certain places and certain people uh, sort of in your life, you know, and you want to go away from just the regular sort of people. And imagine, imagine you take a vacation and you're so excited, you arrive, you get to your hotel room, and right as you are unlocking your hotel room, you notice that in the hotel room right next to you is literally the person you are most excited to get away from. (laughs) And they're like, bro, we're going to have two weeks together nonstop. And you're like, this is the worst. Uh, Essentially, this is exactly what happened. That as Jesus said, we're going to go to this desolate place. They show up to the place where they're trying to get a break from people. And literally as they approach the shore, there's a huge crowd of people. Something along the lines of 15,000. Opposite of desolate. So um, notice how Jesus responds. We're going to have an insight if you're curious about Jesus, curious about Christianity, if you're just sort of in that exploring sort of uh, part of your journey right now, just if you want to know what Jesus is about, just pay attention to these, these words. And he went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus, who himself is hungry and tired, he saw this huge crowd of people. He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't like, dang it. He wasn't like, get away from me. Rather, he saw them, and it said that he had compassion on them. This word compassion is actually a unique kind of word. It's used actually uniquely of Jesus in the Gospels. Um, the, the root word in Compassion is actually guts, what we would think of guts or bowels. Think of like the corest part of, of who you are. And so to have compassion 
is, to, is in the core part of who you are, it actually gets twisted. So it's like, it's like the, at the end, at the core part of who I am, now it's actually twisted and it's shook and you like can't really do anything. It's the stunning kind of feeling. That's this word compassion. In the Gospels, whenever Jesus has compassion, it almost immediately leads to action. He can't help but do something about it. So just if you're looking, exploring Jesus, the Gospels, Christianity, know that this is actually a window into who Jesus is. This is sort of some insight. If you're just curious about what kind of person Jesus, this is who Jesus is. So he has compassion. Notice how he expressed compassion. Um, He taught them many things. So uh, he actually saw a profound need that they needed teaching. Now, why do they need teaching? Look up above it. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if you're like me and you think of sheep, especially sort of biblically, sheep are kind of just dumb, you know? They're just sort of dumb, and it's sort of easy to make fun of sheep. Uh, And uh, easy targets, sheep. Um, And yet... uh, when Jesus had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd, don't think dumb. Just think directionless. Just think um, sheep, these sheep uh, had no purpose. They had no direction. That's why they were so desperate to show up in this desolate place without thinking about resources or what they would need in order to go there or to stay there. They were so desperate because they were sheep without a shepherd. They desperately needed direction, meaning, and purpose. And that is why Jesus had compassion. That's what at the core of his being, his guts twisted. They needed a leader meaning, purpose, direction. So what does he do? He teaches them. He gives them the very thing they need. He begins to give them that direction, meaning, and purpose. Mark doesn't give us the content of this sermon. Uh, John, we actually read it earlier in the service, gives us some of the content of the sermon. Jesus talking about himself being the bread of life. and um, How it is that uh, the kingdom actually comes in and through his ministry. That's some of the content, but he's giving them direction. So that's Jesus, compassion of the crowds. The disciples, meanwhile, what are they up to? Well, as far as we can tell from this text, they dutifully began to shift their emotions and began to manage the crowd. They began to sort of deal, okay, here's this crowd, Jesus having compassion on them, Jesus, I'm really hungry, and I would really like some rest, but I guess that's not going to happen for us now. Okay, whatever. They're sort of soldiering on. Kind of impressive, actually. So they soldier on, and they begin to manage the crowd, and this is when things begin to go wrong. Uh, as they're managing the crowd, they begin to observe and realize there is a significant problem. Um, it goes something like this. There's a huge, giant, massive crowd, and we have no food. We have no resources to actually take care of, to love, on, to, to, to manage this crowd. And the disciples uh, panicked. They began to high center and fixate on the problem. 
And they began to sort of work through ways in which they could manage and solve their problem. And they actually came up with a solution. And they begin, and they present their solution to Jesus. Let's see if Jesus likes their solution. Uh, verse 35. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So their solution to their problem was, for, was to actually send this crowd away from Jesus to meet their needs. That's their solution. That's, that's their thinking. Let's see what Jesus thinks about their solution. Verse 37. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. All right? That's, that's a way, that's a Jesus way of saying, I don't like that. Uh, I, don't like, I don't like what you just said. Um, in fact, I so don't like what you just said. I don't like the way that you're thinking here. Jesus has this tendency, if, if, if his disciples are looking at, a pro, they're looking at a problem wrongly, Jesus has this tendency, he doesn't alleviate the problem, he actually makes it worse. Side note. If you follow Jesus, if you're a disciple of Jesus, if you have a problem that is on repeat in your life, it could be, doesn't, not necessarily, but it, might it be that Jesus is actually ex, ex, accentuating the problem? He's actually pushing through his divine sovereign hand. He's actually pushing in on that sensitive area of your life over and over again to get you to have a different perspective on that problem. Okay, inside note. Jesus says, you give him something to eat. Okay, so they reply, uh, shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them uh, give it to them to eat. In other words, should we literally spend everything that we have in order to meet this one problem, Jesus? And Jesus, uh, Jesus is like, no. Uh, he said to them, how many loaves you have, go and see. And when they found out, uh, they said five and two fish. Five loaves, two fish. Okay, now you guys know the rest of this story. It's a, literally the most famous miracle story in all of the gospels. It's the only miracle story uh, mentioned in all four gospels. Jesus does the impossible. He miraculously divides the loaves and the fish, and he amazingly performs this miracle of feeding the 5,000, at least 5,000 men here, it says. So think 15 or even 20,000 people. So, uh, so the disciples, uh, they witness this incredible event. Uh, Jesus meets the needs of the people, and yet even in the most remarkable sort of miracle story of Jesus we have in the Gospels in the midst of Jesus' ministry, something dark is beginning to grow in the heart of the disciples. Something, something uh, broken 
is beginning to grow like gangrene in their soul in the midst of this remarkable miracle story. Now, Jesus knows it, but he's not going to call him out on it yet. He's just going to accentuate the problem even worse in their life. So let's go on now to the next episode. So Jesus heals the, the 5,000, or Jesus um, uh, feeds the 5,000. Now it's the next episode. He dismisses the crowd, and then he has instructions for the disciples. Disciples, get back in the boat, go to Bethsaida. Uh, I'm going to stay here tonight because I need time to pray. So I'm going to stay here. I'm going to pray. You guys go and, on, on the boat and go to Bethsaida. And, um, and so that's what they do. So, uh, so the disciples uh, go on the boat. And right in the middle of the night, they face this unusually strong wind. Now, in that region, uh, it is actually unusual to have extremely strong winds in the middle of the night. It's like 3 a.m. Super unusual to face these sort of winds. But nevertheless, it says they are making their ways their way uh, painfully. The word actually is torment. So the middle of the night, they're rowing and they're making their way with torment. So they're at the very end of their physical abilities to progress their boat any further. And, um, and this is where we'll pick it up. Uh, let's pick it up in uh, verse 48. How about that? So here's Jesus, he's on, the, he's on the shore, and he saw that they were making their headway painfully, for the wind was against them about the fourth watch of the night. And he came to them walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. All right? Um, I don't know what you would think if you saw someone literally walking on water. Um, and uh, how it is that you would respond if, if that were to happen uh, to you, um, I don't know how I would respond. It's hard to judge uh, what the disciples do. But for first century Jews, um, walking on the water had a very particular meaning to it. So in the Old Testament, um, there is only one person who has the power and authority to defy the laws of nature. And anyone want to guess who that one person might be? No, no. Think higher up on the... On God. God. <laughs> yeah. only, only, only God. Uh, only God can do it. Moses did actually part the sea, so that's, uh, I get partial credit uh, for that. <clears throat> um, so in Job, Job describes that, that Yahweh walks on the, on the waves of the ocean. Like sort of this symbol, since... Yahweh is the creator of the ocean. He's the only one who actually can defy the laws of nature and step on it. Um, obviously, God himself, he hovers over the waters of the deep. There is this imagery that there's only, only one source, only one person who has the power to do that, and it's God. So here comes Jesus, and he's walking on the water. And it said, second, secondly, that he meant to pass by them. So when you read this at first glance, you might think passing by them, like is Jesus just trying to rush past them uh, to get to the shore before them, or what does that even mean? Again, for first century Jews, this is what it meant. 
um, Moses, now, now Moses is the right answer, uh, he, he desired to see the very glory of God. I want to see glory of God. And there was this sort of agreement. God's like, if you actually were to stand in my full presence, annihilate you or whatever, but I tell you what, I'm just, I'm just going to let you, I'm just going to walk past you. I'm going to walk past, I'm just going to come, I'm going to let my, my presence, my glory, just to go, I'm going to go past you, and you're going to get a glimpse of my majesty and of my glory. So this is sort of rock-solid, bedrock theology for any first-century Jew. So here are the disciples Here's Jesus walking on the water, clue number one, he's God. And here he is passing in front of them, showcasing the very glory of God. Yahweh is with them. But let's see how they respond. But when they saw him walking on the water, or uh, walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They couldn't recognize him. They couldn't see him. In the, in the midst of that turmoil, they actually reverted back to some old school superstitions, old ways of looking at the world. And the category that instantly came to mind for them was, must be a ghost. And they were terrified. So they think that it's a ghost. They couldn't see Jesus for who he really was, why? Well, Mark tells us. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Astounded in the Gospels isn't a good thing. Usually it's sort of like profound unbelief. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In other words, there was something about Jesus feeding the 5,000 that they refused to acknowledge they didn't get. And they became hardened in that disbelief that now caused them to be unable to see Jesus for who he really was. So now let's just go back and let's see what is it exactly that they missed with the loaves. Let's turn back to verse 35. And when it grew late, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So what was the lesson of the loaves? What did that, lo- what did, what did that problem reveal in the heart of the disciples? This is what it revealed. This action of sending them away from Jesus revealed a belief in the heart of the disciples that would be the cause of their spiritual regression. And here's the belief. The belief is that deep down inside, the disciples thought and had this conviction that there are certain problems Jesus can't fix. There are certain problems Jesus can't fix. Their solution was literally to send them away from Jesus, who is the bread of life. 
Deep down inside, they believed there were certain situations, circumstances in which Jesus wasn't needed. Because they believed that, it prevented them from seeing who Jesus really was, who is God. But instead, what they saw was a ghost. So that's the lesson of the loaves. So what about you and me? Remember, our whole purpose this morning is to try and diagnose what ha- what's going on in our hearts when we begin to take a step backwards. How does the story help? Well, here's how it helps, and I think it, it can help when we just diagnose it this way. We regress when we begin to believe false things about Jesus. We take a step backwards when we believe false things about Jesus. When we, like the disciples, begin to believe the lie that there are certain needs in our lives Jesus is concerned about, isn't concerned about, we take a step backwards. When we begin to believe there are certain problems I face that Jesus can't or won't address, we take a step backwards. When we believe there are certain circumstances that Jesus desires not to intervene in, we take a step backwards. Now, obviously, history tells us that Jesus doesn't always miraculously generate thousands of loaves and fish. History tells us Jesus doesn't always dramatically subvert the laws of nature to showcase his divinity by walking on the water. But these stories are written so that, so that we can know that with God all things are possible and in order to change our thinking about God. In other words, to change our thinking so that we can know that regardless of our circumstances, Jesus wants to be more involved, not less. That regardless of our circumstances, Jesus wants to be more engaged in your life and in your problems, not less. Jesus desires to be more with you, not less. So, in order to get unstuck, in order to reverse that kind of spiritual regression, it actually requires you and me to let go of some deeply held default beliefs about Jesus that are not true. And by the way, these deeply held beliefs about Jesus that are not true almost always are revealed in crises. They're almost always revealed when the pain is intense. And so if you're going through one of these seasons right now, this can be a blessing. It can be a blessing because it can reveal these, these beliefs we have about God that are actually not true. So let's have some fun and let's just explore some of these beliefs that maybe we have about Jesus that are not true. Now, for the disciples, the whole point of this passage was this belief about Jesus and problems. But what about you? That may be yours and maybe something else. Ask yourself, is there something you believe about Jesus that is false? If so, know that you will not grow in your faith until you let that false belief go. I'll give you three examples, and then we'll close. Some of you may believe this morning that your past disqualifies you from being used by God. 
Some of you believe that. That is a lie. That's a lie. What is true is that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, and behold, the new has come. That is true. If you find yourself regressing, could it be that you actually believe that God won't use you because of something you did in the past? If you think that, that's a lie. Let it go and hang on to the truth, and you will grow. Second lie. I've made too many mistakes to be loved by God. You may think, yeah, God will use me, but he's not going to like it. He's not going to like it. He's not like, I've made too many mistakes for for him to really love me or for him to desire to be around me. I'm I'm not in that category anymore. Um, If you believe you've made too many mistakes to be loved by God, know this, that is a lie. That is a lie. Know that God loves you. He knows your past. He knows everything you've done. God loves you right where you are, right where you sit, right now, this morning. That is the truth. Third lie. Some of you believe that if my life circumstances would change, then I might come back to God. Some of you think, oh, life is kind of crazy right now. And so if, if once my life kind of gets sort of to where it's sustainable, then I'll be at a place where I can come back to God. If you, if you think that, if you think that, that is a lie. That is a lie. What is true is that God desires you and to intervene in your life, in your imperfection, and in all this screwed upness that may be going on in your life, he wants to be involved with you right now, in the midst of the brokenness. That is what's true. My desire for you and my desire for me is that we not have hard hearts like these disciples. And so my challenge for you let go of the lie that you're, that you're believing. Let it go and hang on to the truth. Hang on to the truth of Jesus. Hang on to the truth that he is God wanting to intervene in your life, that he loves you. He is the bread of life. And in fact, he gives up his life because he's the good shepherd for us to restore us, redeem us, and to use us for his glory. That is what's true. Friends, the journey of discipleship is long and all of us will regress from time to time. So let's resist the impulse to stay there. Let's let go of the false beliefs and receive the truth that Jesus is God. He is the bread of life and he offers himself to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, these stories. I thank you for Jesus that in the story we get to see just a glimpse of the character of Jesus, that he's so compassionate, that he loves us and he cares for our needs and I, I thank you for that. 
Lord, uh, though, I, I pray that we could um, learn the lesson uh, that these disciples didn't learn, at least not up to this point in their journey. I thank you that these stories are written so that we can learn from them. Lord, reveal in our hearts false beliefs that we have about you and your word and Jesus. God, I pray you'd reveal them to each one of us this morning. I pray that we would, you would use that to link why it is that our faith may be struggling right now. Link that to those false beliefs in the hearts of everyone here. And God, I pray by your power, by your spirit, Lord, you'd empower us to let those beliefs go. And instead, that we would receive the truth of the good news that comes from your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, great for questions. Yeah. Oh, my phone. Uh, my phone's right in there. Inside. Cheers. Great. Okay. Uh, question one. It's easy to sympathize with the disciples' solutions to the no-food problem because they are practical or realistic. What would a right response from the disciples have been? After all, it's only Jesus who could provide the crowd, not them. Um, great question. And, and I think there's... Um, there is a, a question of agency here that's important. If I had two hours to preach, um, we can get into how... So Jesus clearly was, uh, didn't like their solution to send the crowd away from him to meet the need um, because it revealed a belief that there were certain needs. That's the whole sermon that, that Jesus can't meet, right? Um, however, Jesus, this wasn't Jesus saying, just, you know, let go of the wheel. I'll take over from here. This wasn't Jesus, take the wheel. It, it was, trust me with everything you've got and trust that I will work in and through all of the agencies and resources that you have at your disposal. There are the loaves, there are the fish, after all, that, that Jesus uses, um, right? And so he works in and through their own agency, but he's the one who does it. So uh, I do think it obviously is easy to empathize with the disciples. They are, after all, they've had their vacation ruined, um, and so I think it is easy to see why they would be sort of thrown off by this. But um, nevertheless, it revealed a, a heart issue, a belief issue that they had about Jesus. So uh, hopefully that, that addresses some of the question um, and, uh, and some of how it could be taken to the extreme. Jesus isn't saying, uh, don't use your agency. He uses their agency. Okay, question two. Um, I don't think, I doubt that God loves or forgives me, but I know that's because God is love. But what if I can't forgive myself or let my failures go? What if I don't feel okay, not because God is frustrated with me, but because I'm frustrated with me? Great question. Um, again, but... This is an opportunity, though, to submit to Jesus, right? Um, when we have a hard time letting our own failures go, 
What is that, that diagnosis that we have a really big opinion of ourselves, right? Um, and it's okay that you do because this is the world that we live in. It inflates our sense of self. You can't not have an inflated sense of self. So the very notion of forgiveness subverts a self-oriented worldview. Forgiveness means, forgiveness means I know I'm going to receive something I don't deserve. So it takes you off the, out of the center and you're able to receive grace and mercy. So uh, my encouragement with this sort of question is where, uh, where, is my, where is the self, myself, sort of in my world right now? And if you can't let something go, it's probably because it's, it's not because you think too less of yourself. You may think too much of yourself. Not in that arrogant way, but in a self-oriented way, if that makes sense. All right, okay. Um, there are lots of great books about the problem of the self with this that we could get into. But. All right, those are the two questions we have here. Okay, awesome. Thanks, Brad. So as Dave was <clears throat> preaching, one of the things